We were a bar band, and we didn't really have a name. We were just, you know, you, when you play in bars, you play anything you have to play to not be killed, pretty much. And we needed a name. They wanted to put a name uh, in the window. So we just called it Dr. Hook, but this was to play in a bar. Hello and welcome to another episode of Laps Gamer. I am your host Stuart Neil and joining me tonight is team member Kevin Moore. Hello. And on tonight's show we have another very special guest. Tonight we are joined by uh, composer and musician and... Superstar. Uh, superstar, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tonight we are joined by Kenny Young. Hello. Kenny, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't fire. <laughs> that was a very lacklustre audience member sitting in the corner. Wheeling matches. <laughs> As always, sound designers are really critical people. Oh, absolutely. How did you know that? It's <laughs> true. I, uh, yeah, you've got to be really anal to be a sound person, I think. It's <laughs> part of the job, for sure. Yeah, don't we know it? We put up with Kev every week. <laughs> oh, my word. Don't even get me started. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. So, Kenny, you are a six-time Academy-nominated freelance composer, sound designer, and audio director, uh, with working with big teams, small teams, and startup experience. Um and have worked on numerous different projects and games and uh, I will let you tell us a little bit more about yourself um, before we start launching into the questions so go ahead yeah um, you've kind of said it all really but I suppose um, relevant to this podcast is yes I I, am a game developer and uh, been making games professionally since 2004 my first job in the industry was at Sony's London studio working on <laughs> my very first project was uh, something which no one remembers. I dare <laughs> anyone to remember iToy Chat. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> which was basically just a webcam software for the yep. uh, <laughs> for the iToy. Uh, I guess Sony, this was like, uh, the PlayStation 2 had been out for a couple of years, it was going great guns and Sony were cash rich and they were just like commissioning completely random ass stuff just because they could just to kind of test the waters and of yep. course when you work at a first party studio like that your 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 mission isn't necessarily to make money it's to just you know to support the platform so mm-hmm. yeah that that was a great first job i worked on a whole bunch of different stuff so that was my first project and then i worked on a game called the getaway black monday which was the uh, sequel to the getaway which was yeah. uh, a big hit Mm. Um, slightly in the shadow of GTA, um, but had the novelty of allowing you to drive about London. Uh, mm-hmm. So I worked on the sequel to that, which was uh, that was amazing because you know I was I was uh, you know just a graduate and I was straight. I basically did all the sound in that game, which is kind of mad because it's a triple A. That by those days mm. standards, that was a triple yeah. A project. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was massive. quite a large team. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I did all the I did all the in game sounds. I didn't do the cutscenes, but I did everything that you could hear when you're playing the game other than the car engines and some of the mm. weapons, basically, which was just a ridiculous amount of work and responsibility to give to <laughs> a kid, basically. <laughs> but that was the cool thing about that 
that that that that studio at that point was they had so many projects in the go that <laughs> I think standards had to drop just to get support all the projects. So that was just a brilliant opportunity, and that kind of set me up uh, working with all those different teams. So I worked on about you know twelve, fourteen different projects there over three and a half years, and then I joined Media Molecule and set up the audio department there. Obviously worked on Little Big Planet, Little Big Planet Two, all the DLC for that, oh. um, Tear Away for the Vita. Uh, I also worked on mm. uh, Dreams, their announced but as yet unreleased uh, sort of next big thing in user-generated content project, and uh, Terry Unfolded on PlayStation 4. Uh, mm. And then a couple of years ago, vaguely coinciding with <laughs> becoming a father, I, uh, I left Media Molecule to go freelance. Um, and actually, I shipped Terry Unfolded as a contractor. I stayed on after I decided to leave, which <laughs> didn't go down very well. I, <laughs> um, I stayed on for another four or five months to ship that game because I didn't want to, you know, <laughs> completely mess them over and burn all my bridges. Mm. So yeah. uh, I kind of did that as a favor to them. But since then, I've been working with, well, like, yeah, Tearaway was, uh, I guess, a three-year project, something like that. So that was quite long. Um, oh, yeah. You know, Dreams started at the same time, so that's been going for about <laughs> six years now. So good grief! Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I in that in the time that I've left, I've probably worked on more games than I did in the whole time I was at Media Molecule for eight years. <laughs> um, so it's a completely different pace of things now. Um, but it really suits me being at home. I know that my dad, uh, you know, have have lunch with uh, my wife and my son on the days that he's not in nursery and she's not at work, mm. uh, and I can help out in the evening. So even when I'm busy, uh, and you know, working in games, there are deadlines. It's deadline driven, so there there are some mm. late nights, and it just means that I'm around in the evening to help put him to bed. And then if I am busy, I can just go straight back into my studio and get get back on it and uh, or, or record a podcast. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, and that's it's great to have that flexibility because when you're working in house, uh, you are obviously on site at the developer all the time, which is great in terms of collaboration. But in terms of the work life balance, it's not ideal. So for yeah. this time in my life, um, this suits me perfectly. And I would, I think, I would definitely work in house again at some point. But right just now, freelance is uh, is the way to go. And there's loads of work out there at the moment um, with the democratization of of game development. There's loads of small teams working on interesting projects. And in many respects, the most interesting work is actually with the small teams. The challenge is just uh, <laughs> getting paid enough to live. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's a kind of that's a, a brief career overview. Uh, for you about me. It's, it definitely seems like the best way to go, doesn't it? The freelance thing. Once you've actually started getting a family together, um, we were talking to Andy a few weeks ago, uh, Andy Antonio, and um, he's done the similar kind of thing. You yeah. know, sort of taking a bit, a bit of a step back from the smoke, and um, you know, started doing it pretty much under his own steam. Yeah, and the, the thing is that audio has traditionally always had probably a higher percentage of freelancers than most other disciplines. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you what the what the stats are for that either in the past or now in, in terms of the different disciplines, but um, typically because audio tends to get involved towards the end or, or nearer to the end of the project than many of the other disciplines, you know, it's not viewed as being pivotal to starting a project, even if it's pivotal to uh, finishing it in the player experience. Hopefully, yeah. the people you're working with <laughs> feel that. <laughs> um, but like, it, it, like, it's really expensive to have, for example, a composer on staff. So oh, even now, oh, yeah. the vast majority of composers are uh, freelance. And with uh, sound designers, um, it's... I don't know, it's different. There's a lot more in-house sound design jobs than there are 
uh, in-house composition jobs, for example. But mm-hmm. um, it's always lent itself to that for, for those reasons. And um, because of that, there's kind of a, it's very competitive and it's a bit cutthroat, but there is a, there's a market there. It's not like, you know, I went freelance and it was impossible it was i went freelance and it was difficult i just had to get my name out there and let people know that i was because i'm known for being an in-house er so what you want is obviously when people are looking for someone to for your name to pop into their brain for, mm-hmm. for all yeah. the right reasons <laughs> <laughs> well that brings me on to um just one of the questions that i had lined up then so now that you've moved into sort of being freelancer and what have you yeah do you have to chase jobs and pitches um, and do pitches and things to get the jobs or are you being contacted by studios and things because of your your known name? And then how do you how do you pick and choose the projects um, whenever you've got the opportunity for them? I'll answer the last question first because it's it's easier. The I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm um, I'm a soul trader. It's, it's just me. Um, I'm not I haven't set myself up as an audio outsourcing company, which was something I, I could have done, where effectively, whilst I might be the face of, of the company and maybe like, you know, biz dev, um, I would then be taking on projects and actually managing um, other people. And that's a model which um, is successful. And I've got, I know people working game audio who do that and do that quite successfully. And they're probably making more money than me. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I really, 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 really love making games and don't particularly enjoy <laughs> managing people. Um, mm. I, that, I view that as a necessary evil on a larger project. Uh, and I was always very hands-off in my management style uh, to the point where just like not really managing, which is <laughs> the media molecule way, to be honest. That's how all the directors, uh, other than Siobhan, who is kind of... Uh, the real takes takes the weight of the management responsibility there but the, the other directors lead lead from the front and they're hands-on game developers rather than you know execs or yeah <laughs> or <Zoops>. whatever <laughs> yeah and so that was very much the house style at Mead molecule and that suited me because like i say i love i love making games and so now that i'm freelance that was something i wanted to continue was to uh you know work with teams which are smaller um and you know media molecule was relatively small for a triple a uh, console developer but um just just so that i can either do you know all of the sound or all of the music or or even both though that is actually as i'm learning <laughs> quite draining <laughs> to try and do both at the same time particularly with the sort of time pressure that, that audio has in it particularly on uh, smaller projects uh and lower budget projects where there's just you know, time is money, so there's there's therefore less time because there's <laughs> there's less money. But yeah, so I, I mean, I'm in the fortunate position where because it's just me, um, I, I get offered more work than I can take, which is a great position mm-hmm. to be in. And and in many respects, up until this point, just because I've had the anxiety of uh, you know not wanting to be out of work, it's just kind of been first come first serve. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> someone's offered me work, and uh, I know, and, and I've I've had a gap in my schedule. Then I'd be like, yep. Uh, and then there's always the problem of uh, you know games always slip, and then you've got to sort of spin lots of plates at the same time when you're overlapping with uh, the next gig you're going to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm kind of doing that in the moment where I'm spending three weeks of the month with the current project, but I'm meant to be on another one, so I'm doing one week a month with them to sort of try and ease into it and keep them <laughs> happy. Um, <laughs> so you know you got stuff like that to manage, which you don't have to worry about quite so much when you're in house because hopefully the projects are managed a bit more <laughs> carefully than <laughs> than the chaotic world of being freelance um so yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't say i've been picking projects uh, they've kind of picked me for sure 
Um, but the, the the one thing I've learned is that when again, particularly in audio, you're kind of towards the end of production, you're kind of going from fire to fire to fire. And it's just incredibly draining to be in that constant end of project cycle, uh, mm, which yeah. is something I, I guess that was what it was like for me when I worked at Sony originally in that in their London studio because I was uh, working on a couple of projects, two or three projects at the same time, and it, and it was the it was very much more you know get the job done at that point because I had so many projects that just you know it was like all hands to the deck type stuff and I was younger so I could I could I had the energy to, to do that <laughs> but now I like I've definitely learned the lesson that I actually need to build some time between projects or the project needs to be a big enough bit of work that I know that when I go onto it it's not going to be completely crazy straight away because that's just not you can't sustain that um, yeah. and uh, so I'm kind of like, for example, I don't have any projects lined up for 2018 yet. Um, I've got work for the rest of the year and for a little bit of the beginning of next year. And then there's there's nothing in there. And so I'm not really chasing much right now. I know some of my past clients have new projects that they might want me on then. So because that's enough in the future, if it's more than three months, it's like there's just not much point worrying about it because... yeah things change and so mm. I, again i've had my fingers burnt by making the assumption that because someone said they needed me on you know on month x that you're like right mm. i'm ready they're like oh yeah we don't need you now and it's you know you've you've moved things around so you need to stay in contact with people you need to be flexible and you need to have make sure you're getting paid enough so that if there is a few weeks where you're not earning anything that it doesn't you know that your cash flow is not completely screwed and you can't <laughs> pay your mortgage <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that that's kind of new and that's you know because i'm new to that that's kind of interesting and fun i'm sure in another couple of years that'll be just like de rigor and boring but um mm. i'm kind of enjoying that aspect of running my own business and so what were the first two questions <laughs> it was just about well you've kind of covered them it was as a freelancer do you have to chase jobs or um look out look out for opportunities for pitches and things or do people approach you so if i think about the work i've done over the past two years then the vast majority of it has been people who i've either worked with before um who they'll so that means they'll be because i've only worked at sony uh, london <laughs> studio and at mini molecule so it's people who have obviously worked there at some point and then they've gone other places or they've started their own companies or whatever so it's people i've worked with who are like uh yeah would you like to work together and it's like yeah great and then there's people who i haven't worked together but who i know and i guess they know of me and they've asked me to work with them and that's been great mm. it's taken a, a yeah a while for people who i've literally like never met <laughs> to sort of get in touch and be like, hey, we'd like to work together. And that's, um, I think that's just, you know, again, getting the word out there that I am a freelancer and uh, available, etc. And so there's there's more of that coming in now, which is interesting. Um, and the other thing is, yeah, if there is a particularly interesting project which looks like it might not have anyone involved yet, then uh, I'll absolutely follow up with the developer when they announce it and be like, that looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. If I'm a good fit, let's talk. Uh, yeah, get, get your foot in the door yeah and what's it i mean generally speaking by the time a project's announced that's generally too late because generally by, by the time it's announced it's probably been worked on for a while but yeah. things are so chaotic now with small teams that you know that's not necessarily the case so you know i've got the massive advantage of having worked in house as an audio director i know what it's like to be on the other side of the fence so hopefully that means that the way i present myself and communicate is in a way that's like not annoying <laughs> and not, <laughs> not too desperate and, <laughs> and all the rest of it and yeah i'd like to think that that makes me good to work with as well so anyway so it's, it's all going well 
I'm still alive. I'm contributing towards society, kinda, and uh, <laughs> you know, keeping the wolves from the door at home. But yeah, no, it's good. I, I love it. It's great. So, with working in the industry then, and sort of with the game development things, at what stage in game development are you usually brought on board? And um, to start with the audio side of it? it, it does vary quite a bit depending upon the teams. It's difficult to say experience. It's more about their uh, appreciation and kind of respect for audio and understanding and appreciation of how important it is if you're trying to create a high-quality player experience. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, on smaller projects, generally speaking, they might not have budget for it, but the reality is that that's an excuse because I am working with indie developers who are prepared to pay me for... Uh, longer because they know that or that they believe that audio is an important part of the experience and then without it and without mm. me uh, not just like you know doing it but actually doing it and then iterating on it and uh, creating a hopefully slightly more sophisticated audio experience than it would be if I just did the absolute bare minimum to like tick that box then that they're prepared to, to pay for that so and they don't have loads of money but they think it's important so so that's interesting like that shows me that uh, it's really it's just about if you, how much do you value it and you know if you are tight in money then that puts pressure on on you it's a bit like <laughs> i remember when we got married you've got to do this horrible thing where you draw a line in your friends about who can <laughs> who can yeah. who can come to the party basically and that's such a nasty nasty thing to have to do and you know i still feel guilt over people that I would have loved to have been there uh, who weren't but ultimately you are forced to choose and i think more often than not audio is not invited to the party <laughs> yeah <laughs> in in the indie budget land and uh, it's not just indies with lack of money but that's the case i think a lot of projects with better funding again audio is not viewed as being particularly as important as as i think it is but i mean obviously i think that because i think audio is the center of the universe it's crucial um, yeah, it but but it is, yeah. it is it's interesting it's like so there's there's kind of some politics there and there's like an educational side to my job as well if you're working with a client who you know doesn't get that then that that is something which i take into consideration in terms of if it's something i want to work with is it, what are, what are they going to be like to work with because it's not it's not just about the money. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that because I've got a good reputation and I've worked in some high-profile titles, um, I probably am getting paid more than a lot of other freelancers. But that also means that I kind of charge different amounts depending on. I've got like mates rates for people yeah. who I'm doing not a total favor to, but like I, I'm definitely charging them less than I would if it was someone I didn't know and was helping out. Otherwise, you'd end up pricing yourself out of the, the job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And you're missing out on some pretty interesting work then. Yeah. And so there's like, there's like the three things for me are there's like, there's the money, there's the project, and then there's the the team or the people and the the people you'll be collaborating with. And I've worked with like, oh, I say I've not worked with that many people. So I need to be careful what I'm saying. Because I was like, are they talking about (laughs) me? But, um, you know, I would definitely say that I would take uh, a brilliant team and a brilliant collaboration over... Um, someone who's difficult to work with but might pay better because it's just mm. at the end of the day this is what I'm doing day in day out it's, I don't want it I want it to be as good as possible and that trumps the payment basically ideally you want both obviously you want like the dream of like amazing money and an amazing oh, project yeah. and yeah. just you know, don't we all <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's uh, so that, that that's interesting in the part of being freelance as well 
Um, okay, we will kind of go back in your history then. Um, obviously, you've studied <laughs> oh, <let's>. music. <laughs> <laughs> you studied music at university, and so what brought you to music before that? Um, is there a certain musicality and what have you that runs in the family? Yeah, there's definitely music in the family. My my dad's uh, a very keen amateur musician, and he was like semi professional when he was when he was a youngin. Uh, mm-hmm. Played in a, a Gaelic folk group called Nihilerich, which means the Exiles, rock and roll. Oh. <laughs> they were like they were like the shizness uh, in the sixties folk revival. Um, <laughs> nice. And uh, it's cool. There's like archive footage of my dad playing on like BBC Scotland with like you know total hilarious seventies haircut, and uh, <laughs> it's just you know it's just mad. But um, so, but he he was a he he was a, a teacher and subsequently worked in public health, the exciting world of public health. But um, so he he was he was I guess the main direct influence on me in terms of he was really keen that I be a musician. It was me that asked to learn to play <laughs> the fiddle when I was yeah. like five or six, which is kind of it's weird. a bizarre instrument to take on. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, it is strange, but because it's so difficult as well. Um, but I think because it's uh, such a you know it's one of the most. Uh, the most traditional Scottish uh, instruments that. I don't know. I need to ask my dad if he ever thought, God, this is going to be painful. Let's not do that. But um, <laughs> there was a, a fiddle on the wall in my parents' house that my gran had had got. She had had nursed to <laughs> spinster sisters <laughs> when they were dying, which sounds so weirdly Dickensian, but um, <laughs> Just I guess bit. that was pre-NHS, quite possibly, because she was born in like 1903 or something um but but basically the family of, of of these women had said to her after she'd looked after them um if there's anything you want from the house uh, help yourself and she took this fiddle which was hanging on the wall and so no one had ever played it it just been like this sort of weird bit of objet da hanging on walls <laughs> in, in the young family and uh my primary school did a kind of cool but weird production of peter and the wolf the prokofiev suite and so it was like with like the parts acted out by <laughs> primary school kids and <laughs> the, the cool thing was to the side of the stage there was uh this little uh fake orchestra miming along to the music which must have been super cute uh but basically our, our teacher said uh you know if you've got an instrument at home bring them in and we'll, and we'll do this and uh so we had this fiddle on the wall and i took that in and i was miming along to <laughs> to peter and the wolf and i thought this was great and so that I came, apparently i came home from that experience saying can i learn the violin please and yeah and my dad obviously thought that that was a good idea and so, so I did. <laughs> I had piano lessons a bit uh, when I was four or five, I think. Um, but that was from a neighbour, and my mum used to pay her it in bread, <laughs> bake bread, and give her a nursing to take because she wouldn't take money. So it was like it was that was that was a little thank you. Anyway, so I had violin lessons. I was very privileged and lucky to have sort of private lessons from the age of six or seven all the way up until I was twenty-one. And so I didn't really study music at school other than right at the end because I had this sort of, you know, private education, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, had a lesson every weekend for, for years and years and years. And I also played guitar. I was like massively into Oasis, as probably every teenager was uh, just about. 
I was my age. But I also I had quite eclectic tastes even then. I was also into Marilyn Manson, which yeah. <laughs> probably wasn't the, the, the Sven diagram of people who were into both. It's probably <laughs> quite small. It's pretty minimal. But, yeah. Yeah. But I was also like, that was that was more of the fact that I had, had sort of quite a diverse group of friends and there was like I was hanging out with with the goths <laughs> as well as the uh, <laughs> as the the mods as well so and I yeah I played in like my high school orchestra and when I went to uni I did uh, it was a music technology degree at Edinburgh uni and that was just combining my techie nerdiness with my musical background I'd already worked out at that point I didn't want to be a performer I remember my dad being quite keen that I do the uh, there was a they just started up a traditional music traditional folk music uh, mm-hmm. degree at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama and I totally could have done that but I knew that that was basically kind of committing to a life of performance and I didn't really enjoy playing for people I don't think it's because I had like a lack of confidence I think I just generally because I'm so such a perfectionist I was just never yeah. happy with what I was doing but that's why I didn't enjoy it like other people enjoyed it but it didn't really matter to me that other people enjoyed my playing it had to be that I enjoyed it because I mean obviously if you're going to spend your life doing that then you've got to be into <laughs> it and I always just found it I, I did find it a bit stressful I didn't I say I ever really took to it as uh, naturally anyway I could have done it but I, I knew I wasn't prepared to do the work required to be good enough <laughs> um and so for because I'm not shy of doing work but there's something about practice and perfection very to tedious. perform something yeah to perform something in real time that is perfect in inverted commas like that is um and that's not what musical performance is about it's not necessarily about being perfect unless you're a concert violinist which i was never going to be going down that route i would have been going down the the, the folk route probably i was i was like well i've been doing playing the violin for like you know whoever it was 15 years by the times i was making this decision and thinking uh why have I been doing that? Because <laughs> I'd, I'd done it from such a young age and I'd forgotten why I was doing it. And it's, I, I, there wasn't a reason why I was doing it. I was just doing it because I was doing it. And then so I had that, I got that awkward point where I was like, just sort of having to have, it's just a weird thing to do as an 18 year old think, because I guess most people don't necessarily, necessarily have a clear sense of what they want to do at that point. That's one of the sort of crises that a lot of people have Definitely when they get not. to leaving school yeah. age. And uh, I kind of knew that I wanted to do music, but I felt a bit lost because I did didn't want to do performance and in my head that's all there was with music mm-hmm. you know especially if you're like into music and you're into bands and you're into live performance then to not do that it felt like there was nothing else and I was aware that there was this thing called a composer but I, I absolutely knew that that I wasn't one and had no idea that that something I could do it seemed quite inaccessible so when I went to study music technology that was me choosing not to study straight music although because Edinburgh Uni is quite an old traditional institution a lot of what I was studying was half of a traditional music education I was studying orchestration and counterpoint and harmony and uh, elementary musical analysis and all these things which I totally would not have chosen to study (laughs) Um, but in retrospect did that come in handy? oh yeah absolutely Um, I mean the music I write is not super sophisticated in terms of um, uh, its compositional structure and stuff like that I mean most of what I write is quite simple harmonically and in terms of its arrangement it's it's really it's quite it's like it's, it's totally just like a pop song really mm. it's more coming from my fiddle background uh most most fiddle tunes are like a simple binary <laughs> form of like a b a b yeah and lo and behold <laughs> that's what <laughs> <was> this, <laughs> which it does tend to suit the projects i write for and i'm at a point now yeah. where i'm kind of 
uh, and no, not in a bad way. I'm kind of typecast as uh, Mr. Quirky Stroke Folky, but you know, <laughs> I, I I really really love uh, writing that stuff. So like, I don't, uh, and at this point, I still view being paid to write music as such a massive privilege that I have absolutely no problem being typecast in inverted commas because if people are coming to me ask me to write music then that's just that's awesome <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> so basically i went from being very focused on music and music performance to i basically what was great about the music technology course at edinburgh is i discovered working creatively with sound and that isn't something that i was conscious of at all up until that point and that really allowed me to reuse a lot of my musical skills my listening skills and my critical listening skills and apply that in this new way that was similar to music but also just not music and i think that's that that was really fortunate because that was just what i needed i needed something that was using all those skills that wasn't that thing <laughs> um yeah. and, and that was just awesome and I, I from there i went to uh i did a master's degree in sound design and that was really just because uh when i when i left edinburgh i didn't feel in any way ready for the world of work <laughs> at that age you don't <laughs> no but it wasn't a vocational course i genuinely didn't have any skills that for example i think like i wouldn't have hired me then <laughs> but i kind of knew that i was like I, I hadn't done any sound to picture work which is pretty fundamental even you know like obviously games are interactive so they're more complex than just straight linear sound to picture work but i hadn't even done that and i kind of felt like I, there was a gap in my knowledge so doing the master's degree in sound design down at bournemouth allowed me to um just try that out and I kind of, I was pretty sure that this is something I wanted to do but that absolutely confirmed it for me because I really enjoyed it and I was also really good at it and I just you know absolutely loved it and spent all my time working on that and I got a, like a demo reel together which is what got me my first job basically well my sort of student work that I did in my master's degree mm -hmm. it's hard to, like my my colleagues at Sony all used to joke that I, I was the best of a bad bunch <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you know they would have really have hired someone else, but uh, you know I was I was I was the best they got. So I do feel really lucky to have got that first job because obviously getting into the industry is hard, and uh, I think it's especially hard these days just because there's there's not as many in-house jobs for juniors to get their first mm. sort of foot in the door if you like um so you, people have to go straight into doing freelance work mm. and uh, that's just a really tough grind basically it's like playing ultima online or something yeah <laughs> it's just yeah. painful sharpening sticks <laughs> um <laughs> it's like um so i do so some a friend of mine Eero gross who's an audio director for, for for those games he uh, he set up this project called the audio mentoring project recently which is a volunteer run thing where um people like myself who want to sort of give back and help uh the next generation of up-and-coming talent that want to work in games but there's not the opportunities for them to get junior positions that we can just sort of give them a bit of uh, guidance and mentorship and encouragement and answer any questions they've got and because like there, there's a lot of people working in games who want to help but it's just really unattractive to put your hand up on the internet and say, I'm available because then you'd get like hounded by hundreds of people because there's so many people that want to to do that job. But whereas mm -hmm. this this service is basically it's a it's a it's a, it's a wall between those two worlds where 
uh, we've got a database of people who want to be mentors and we've got a database which is infinitely bigger of people that want to be mentored <laughs> and we, we we put together matches basically and that's been a cool thing to be involved with uh, but the website for that is audiomentoring.com uh, for anyone who's sort of at that stage where they have maybe approaching the end of their studies or their self-studies and are thinking about trying to actually make a living out of uh, working game audio that's that's something which might be uh, of use um mm. or if there's anyone listening who works in game audio then please offer your services as a mentor because we were seriously short on that but yeah audio mentoring <laughs> <laughs> so you, going back to the um audio design you, you know the sound yeah. design side of it yeah. Um, how? What, I mean, how do you start what? with that? I mean, what <laughs> were you using as far as tools are concerned? You know, back at I'm talking back at Edinburgh because obviously, when you were doing it, the tools as compared to what you've got today will have been still pretty yeah. primitive. You got archives and stuff like that, and that's about yeah, it. I mean, really. there, so obviously, it wasn't interactive audio. Really, it certainly no. wasn't. Uh, game related it was more just uh, so we we're working on dat tape and adat which is an yep. eight track vhs yep. <laughs> based recording format vhs is a really good recording format because you could never overload it you could never make it distort yeah um and i actually i've got a real love of sort of analog and retro sound aesthetics yep. so you know, mercury thought, rev actually mastered all their albums to the vhs even huh? now Mad, but is that to ADAT or is that actually onto VHS the analog tape, yeah. one? Mad, crazy. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. It I've, isn't got, it? I've got a VHS uh, recorder that I bought. So when I was doing my master's degree, it was still the case that um, DV was the kind of the format then, but oh, that used yeah. up like hard drive space for a consumer device was not quite ready for that, and then, so I was <laughs> no. still using Simpty Timecode to uh, sync up to, uh, to to VHS tape externally, yeah. and slave to that, yeah. uh, which is so that was like. When was that? That was 2002. Mm. So that was kind of the, just at that point where it was a bridge between those two kind of ancient worlds. Just at the tipping point, really. Yeah, mm. which in a way was nice because it was, it's actually useful to be grounded in some of the old school stuff. I just missed, yeah. when, I, when I joined the Edinburgh Union in 1998, they'd just uh, thrown out all their analogue reel-to-reel machines because they'd stopped doing oh, that. Man. And that was at the, because Pro Tools had just come out, I think that was yeah. maybe that year, the year before, which I didn't use until you weren't allowed to use that until you're in second year. Uh, I, remember, <laughs> I remember using hands off. I think the what was the name of the the single track editor? I think it was called Sound Designer or Sound Designer Pro or something like that, which was what turned into Pro Tools or something. But that was good because that was like just introducing me slowly to sort of digital recording concepts and analog recording concepts and just really just sort of you know the work I was doing then was like awful I've still got it I was listening to <laughs> yeah, I've not listened to it for a while but like listening to it now it's just cringe um, but that's okay it's good to have a reminder yeah absolutely <laughs> but, um, you know like and I'm sure I'll listen to some of my work that I'm doing now in the future and just be like what <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know you're always learning you're always improving your aesthetic gets more sophisticated and of course you get better and faster hopefully but that's the nice thing about games is if you're into technology it does move quickly so it's very easy to actually become out of date on on stuff and um mm. that's one of the things actually that it's not the reason i went freelance but like one of the things i've enjoyed about being freelance is that 
Um, you know, I'm not working on like one project every five years. I'm working on multiple projects a year, and I'm just constantly diving into different tools and learning new things. And uh, that's one of the things that, that I love. And I think that's good, especially <laughs> as I'm getting older. It's important to work those muscles because uh, it's harder to learn stuff, and uh, mm. it's good to yeah, sort of you, keep. You tend to fall back on your old tricks, then, don't you? Oh yeah, definitely. Mm. And uh, going forward, but that's fine if you're like if it's just a job, but uh, because you know. I do take real pride in what I do, and I, I want I want to be the best, <laughs> um, <laughs> or at least I want the, the experiences that I make to be good. So you know, I've got a duty to myself and to the people who are hiring me to try and sort of stay up to date and stuff. But uh, it's great. I was really lucky to get into games when I did because, like I said, the PlayStation Two had just come out. It, that was a tipping point as well in interactive audio technology, where things went from being very old school and hard to use and a bit rubbish to all of a sudden really quite powerful and complex and sophisticated tools to allow you to fight mm. against uh, repetition of the audio and to have variation in there and to do more sophisticated dynamic things with crossfading music and sound effects and all kinds of stuff and because that was it's not that, that stuff was new but it was it wasn't like de rigueur at that point in the way that it is now and so again that technology was coming online and I was exposed to it as the industry was learning it. So my kind of knowledge base has grown uh, in parallel with the progressions in, in, in game audio and in game technology. And uh, like, I don't know what it's like for someone new to start now because there's just so much to learn. That That's something that I don't have a, a grasp on. But again, I'm sort of vaguely conscious of that. It's another reason why involved in something like the Audrey Mentoring Project to sort of try and get back and help people who've faced with that like cliff of knowledge yeah. <laughs> to get their heads around the way that you're writing you know because obviously you've come in pretty much at ground level you know as it really started to get somewhere as far as um, mixing stuff up and making it more yeah. dynamic given that the games are pretty much non-linear as far as a musician's concerned um yeah. how did you adjust to that because it's a completely different way of writing isn't it? you've got to yeah. be able to i mean the thing is that i mean I came to the industry as a sound designer rather than a composer initially, yeah. so I I didn't have a, like a before and after. I'd you know I'd written a bit <laughs> of music, but I'd probably done a yeah. lot more like electro electroacoustic music composition by that point than I had traditional what most people would consider <laughs> to be music, uh, <laughs> just from my, my sort of music technology uh, sort of an academic background there. And then I kind of went hardcore into doing sound stuff. And it's only really, I, I wrote a couple of bits of music when I worked at Sony, but that was just, you know, a couple of little small things for a project. I wrote, yeah. I wrote, did some, or I think I played on some menu music for one of the, <laughs> I think it was Singstar Rocks. There's some uh, sh awesome. shonky guitar <laughs> playing by me. I think the music was written by my uh, pal Jim, uh, Jim Fowler. I'd also written some some awful like relaxation music for iToy Kinetic or, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> uh, so I hadn't really done much and that was simple stuff. But then it was only when I came to Media Molecule and because, you know, they have their sort of meritocracy and quite flat, management structure or, or lack of management <laughs> yeah. structure i was able to it wasn't really something that i i wanted it was just like there was opportunities there where we needed some music and there wasn't time to commission it or to license anything and i just did some little stuff and and i enjoyed doing that and the team seemed happy with what i was doing and that's just sort of grew from there and then you know so i wrote quite a bit of music for little big planet one and two 
by no means was I like the, the you know, like the the main composer on those projects because I'd hired other people to do that. But mm. I did, you know, I, I wrote the menu music, which is probably like mm. the most heard music. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> yeah. one of the most like maybe not as heard as much as something like you know some of the music in World of Warcraft, but like it's probably up there in the like you know the millions of of, of, oh, of lessons. God, yeah. Just think how big that game was. Yeah, it's just crazy. <laughs> which is it's really cool to sort of think about that. I try not to think about it too much because that's kind of scary. <laughs> um, but then from there to to Tearaway, where where basically I, I wanted to hire someone to to do that music. But it was just it was, that was a really difficult project to find someone who really got it. We actually started out trying to create a licensed soundtrack for Tearaway, um, which, if you know the game, it just doesn't seem conceivable because it's just the, the music, uh, the score for it it's is just completely so, unique. You yeah. can't have licensed music on that. Yeah, surely. so it's hard <laughs> to imagine. But we started out just because we'd done the the the, the soundtrack for Little Big Planet it was kind of fifty percent licensed, fifty percent original, and we just that was just the assumption because the, like we'd had the, you know a. a done a good enough job at that for those games that it felt like that was part of the house style if you like so but that's, yeah. that was the starting point but we just couldn't find anything that really gelled with the experience and I guess because of my background in folk music that is I, I kind of have quite a good sense of or at least I've got low tolerance for stuff that isn't authentic or doesn't at least allude to mm. the real deal and so finding a composer who could do that who could also do games was actually incredibly difficult and so that's why i was so involved in that is i was mm. kind of like uh, i was i was i was working with brian Oliveira, who's the, the chap i hired who who absolutely loved working with brian's great i love him to bits um but i was for the first certainly for the first few weeks working together he was <laughs> he was working for me as i sort of <laughs> put him on like f- Anglo Celtic folk boot camp and uh <laughs> and then set him loose and he was able to uh sort of bring some of his uh because he's like half Trinidadian, half Venezuelan, and has a, I think he was originally a percussionist, so he brings a whole bunch of other uh, interesting things to the table, and uh, he was able to bring some of that to tear away. And uh, so it was a really cool collaborative experience. Um, but like that, so that wasn't the plan. When I joined Media Molecule, as far as I was concerned, I was a sound designer, and then I soon discovered that actually I was responsible for the entire. Uh, audio experience and then that, that I absolutely loved that all credit to the directors at Media Molecule for giving <laughs> this total idiot complete control over the <laughs> audio experience in what turned out to be one of the flagship products of the PlayStation 3 era <laughs> but that was just a great opportunity to you know spread my wings and go really deep in a project that's where I, that's when I left Sony because I was working on lots of stuff and it was a great first experience but I really wanted to work uh, much more closely with the team and a bit go a bit deeper on a project and work on it for longer and develop ideas and stuff and that's what I got out of Media Molecule and working on on their games was that opportunity to to do that. And I think you can see that in the end result that the you know the experiences are unique and, and they sound good. And I'm I'm really proud of that. And so yeah. that's kind of what I'm I'm trying to f- get a bit of on a smaller scale. And I think I'm managing to do that with the teams I'm working with now. So so that's cool because I think if I didn't have that, I would be pretty miserable. <laughs> Um, it's really important to have good working relationships and to be able to sort of bring a bit yourself to the project it's not just about you know we need some sounds tick yeah Yeah. we'd like some music please all right then (laughs) (laughs) i'll be back tomorrow how emotionally involved then do you get in the success of a game that you've worked on um i'm sorry i'm thinking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm channeling my emotions it depends on the project to be honest I think if I have emotionally invested in the project then I am massively emotionally invested in 
what happens to it and mm. how it is received. And, you know, stuff like awards are obviously total bullshit, but <laughs> <laughs> it is weird. Like, uh, I'm not one of those people who's never won an award who's just, like, bitter. Uh, Although I would really like a BAFTA, if anyone's listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, like, I, it, it, it is... I, I do read reviews and I do feel special when <laughs> someone mentions the audio because a lot of reviews don't uh, mention the, they certainly don't mention the sound generally they quite often mention the the music uh, which is just because mm. it's something people are a bit more conscious of and so it's almost a game it's like I'll be honest like when I'm working on a project if it's something which I am invested in then I'm thinking well primary thing I'm thinking is how can I make this the best audio experience possible and how can I support the player experience and all the goals of the project but then you know you try and push yourself and it's like okay so i've done this but like how can we make it even better and we had this running gag with uh ed hargrave and todd baker who are the two sound designers i worked with on uh tearaway the tearaway games we had this we had this like running gag about it's like it's good but is it bafta good <laughs> and ironically tearaway didn't it was the, the score was nominated for for the best music uh, BAFTA, which is awesome, but the the audio was the, the audio experience overall was overlooked, which which, which we were like slightly sad about because after our all, all, our, all like you know larking about BAFTA gags, but it's it's interesting that 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 competitiveness and that desire to try and make a unique product because the, this industry does run on innovation, obviously in technology, but also mm. in terms of people want fresh experiences, and that's something that Media Molecule. Uh, really understand they're like fundamentally a tech quite a technology centric company although if you think about little big planet and dreams they're basically tools <laughs> which yeah. when you say it like that it's not actually that interesting but what what will they get right is to uh, you know dress that up in this amazing uh, experience and the amazing mm. game that sort of comes with it and helps to really sell the product and put, and get people to understand what it is because no one no one's interested in tools in that way unless they're intrinsically already in, into creative stuff so pushing that stuff onto consumers is a, a bit much harder ask mm -hmm. and so yeah media molecule are like sort of tech centric but also experience centric and um why am i talking about this don't know games it's cool <laughs> <laughs> well tearaway was the real flagship game if you like for the vita wasn't it because it that yeah. was the one that showed everything off there was a point when tearaway actually did even more Vita centric stuff. And there was a point where it was this. It was it was a location based game with augmented reality, which is like ahead of the curve yeah. in terms of you know this was oh, obviously pre massive. Pokemon Go, um, <laughs> but and it was papercraft and it did everything and it used the cameras and blah 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 and it was actually a bit of a mess. <laughs> and uh, it was actually it was they had been in development for a couple of years and um, it was. It was kind of, it already had it was on its second life and I think it was <laughs> approaching the end of its second life. It was really fortunate where it got a it got a third it got a third life. Um, Rex and Siobhan, the studio director, I mean Molecule, and Dave Smith, one of the uh, creative directors and technical directors, went into offsite for a couple of days and just sort of tore the thing apart and just like I guess they must have I can imagine the whiteboard. <laughs> now they must have listed all the features and be like geopositional what what the fuck are you doing <laughs> and just crossed off all the stuff that was like a bit too esoteric and uh, come back with you know the list of features that we were going to have a game jam on and prototype and that's what we did mm. and uh, then we showed the results of that to Shuhei uh, Yoshida Big Cheese at Sony Worldwide Studios and she was like can't get bigger yeah can't get bigger than she and uh, <laughs> lovely man and he was like 
this is great. We're going to show it at Gamescom, and I can't remember how it was like. It, it was like six weeks or something like. Oh. Not a long. It might even have been three. I can't remember. It was like some like panic, horrible anxiety-inducing. <laughs> so it was like the relief of the fact that we now had support from the main man, which meant mm. the project was safe. Hurrah! <laughs> yeah. But it also we then had to actually because we had a bunch of prototypes basically, but then we had to put together a demo, which is what was shown at Gamescom when the game was announced. Uh, but that's 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 all we had at that point. And actually, it's interesting being on the, from like the inside of Media Molecule. I know that whenever they show anything, that's pretty much what they've got <laughs> at that point. Like, okay, maybe towards the end of development when they're they're doing press and stuff. Obviously, there's stuff they're not showing because they can't spoilers, etc. But when they announce a game, and it was like, oh, it's made. It looks like it's nearly finished. Like, nope, <laughs> that's it, guys. And so. Terry was yeah it was this ridiculous project where I did everything and it's interesting that it's got that reputation that it kind of you know does all these things on the Vita but <laughs> the funny thing is it actually did more at one point <laughs> but that was too much that was too much and uh, yeah it didn't sell particularly well I don't think I mean I don't work at Media Molecule anymore so I'm not subject to inside information about sales numbers anymore but it was obviously a uh, a critical success and that was actually really good for the studio because um tearaway being critically successful um bought dreams <laughs> more time as well <laughs> uh, took, took the eye of sony off of media molecule for 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 a while and uh, gave the directors a bit more breathing room to uh help uh, manifest their next amazing project which, which i really look forward to seeing it's uh, i saw it a few months ago actually i was i went up there to say hi to people and they, they showed me some of their stuff and it's super cool always hyped anything from those yeah it's, it's yeah the super super talented team of lovely people it's uh i do miss them Ooh, fortunately i'm still friends with uh with, with a lot of yeah, people you're, there, so you're still on talking terms absolutely still still on talking and drinking terms so it's all good hey yeah. <laughs> so what about your gaming history then at what stage did you start playing games and what sort of games have influenced you i like it's going going like way back earliest stuff i so I, I was denied a games console as a child. Look at me now, parents. <laughs> what have you? This is your fault. Uh, <laughs> um, Didn't work for him, did it? <laughs> no. Like to protect our child from the evils of gaming. Um, I d- yeah, I don't know. I think yeah. They, they, uh, to be honest, you know, fair play to them. I think me and my brother have turned out all right. So you know, whatever works. <laughs> um, but you know, it's slightly pointless in the sense that, of course, like every other kid who didn't have a console, I was just playing on my friends' master systems or Mega Drives or SNESs or yeah. Commodore sixty fours or or uh, BBC Micros for the posh kids. <laughs> yes, the teachers' kids. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so you know, still was gaming a lot and absolutely loved it. And I suppose that was actually quite healthy that, you know, when I was hanging out with my friends, I was playing games, but when I was at home, I wasn't doing that, I was doing other stuff. And obviously I had my music and things, so it was, it was all good. But other than a, uh, a Philips Odyssey 2 console... Oh my God! You had one? <laughs> yeah, well, it was a hand-me-down from my cousin, um, basically. But that was the best console I ever had. <laughs> we had two games. That's great! We had TC Munchkin, which was a shameless Pac-Man rip-off that Philips yes. got sued for, yep. I believe. And there was something called... Ah, oh, It wasn't Space Invaders, it was like Space Wars, I think it was called. Which was a two-player, you had a red and a yellow spaceship, and you just like shooting little yeah. asteroids. Um, so it was all yeah. of a totally generic, but um, <laughs> me, my brother, and the other kids from round our way played that, played that to death uh, with those two games. So we got really good yes. at it, and <laughs> you know, again, you know, sort of making the best of limited resources. <laughs> we uh, really enjoyed um, <laughs> playing that. But then 
we got my family got a PC when I was about uh, thirteen, so it was like January sales, <laughs> nineteen ninety four <laughs> from the man from Escom. I don't know if you remember Escom. Uh, mm, that would have been about the same time as Tiny and stuff like that, won't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I don't know if they were. It was a franchise, but yeah, it was like big. Yeah. One of the big sort of all those shops are like. Uh, I've not been to a computer shop for years because you know I buy all my stuff online now. Like I'm sure most people yeah. do, but <laughs> those shops were always so weird. It's like one of the few places you could go where the staff were like proper nerds. Like they didn't just <laughs> like computers; they liked them so much they sold them so they could buy the components at a discount. It was like proper, <laughs> proper hardcore yeah. nerdery. Nerds in shirts, yeah, with like static <laughs> wristbands attached to them. Yes. <laughs> The, yeah, so the first PC I got was like um, off the shelf, but then obviously upgrades. Uh, I remember spending ridiculous amount of money. One of my Christmas presents one year was like eight megabytes of RAM, and it cost a hundred, a <laughs> hundred and eighty pounds, oh which word. is like wow. <laughs> and that was yeah. that was at that point when um, gangs were breaking into offices and stealing the RAM out of computers because it was worth more than its weight in gold <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in the in the mid nineties. It was absolutely crazy. But um, so that was my my it, it was the family computer, but it was in my bedroom. So you know, <laughs> you can see how that worked. You're uh, going to see it again? <laughs> yeah, they, no one, no one got shot on that. Uh, fortunately, my my brother wasn't that way inclined. He was uh, he was more of a jock than a nerd. So he was he was he's uh, yeah he's out playing sports. And uh, not into computers, so that suited me. <laughs> and I was playing like you know X Wing, SimCity 2000, Doom, mm. a lot of classic stuff from that era, a lot of the Lucas Arts stuff, uh, and loads. You just, I think you kind of got a sense of everything at that point because you were playing cover discs, which yeah. were just yeah. like, yeah. you know, it was at that point when a cover disc would actually sell you the magazine because that was <laughs> the main reason you were buying the magazine. <laughs> and uh, I actually loved that, and I would play demos because you know I couldn't afford to buy. Uh, games really and I'll be totally honest a lot of my games were pirated because you could fit you know a game like X-Wing on a couple if you didn't install the intro sequence it would fit on a couple of discs I think it yeah. Was, uh, yeah those were the, those were the days uh, I, 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 can, I can I can hand on heart say I don't pirate anything or torn anything these days so I'm a good person but mainly because I guess I make my living from copyright so it's, it's important not to be a total <laughs> hypocrite um, yeah turn coat <laughs> <laughs> the first game I bought full price was uh, Wing Commander 3 uh, I bought at like Amsterdam airport um, and which I thought was getting a good deal because it was you know in inverted commas VAT free but mm. it was a total scam and it cost me like <laughs> 60 quid or something that was like my life savings at that point but this was like you know something I was really excited about so bought that and uh, and I played that game that was when I, I completed that game I completed loads <laughs> of games in those days because I had the time um, but I played an absolute boatload of uh, Counter-Strike when I was a student um, so like from like 1998 all the way through to probably when I got my first job I was in like 2004 I was still playing Counter-Strike most nights so mm. I was just like hardcore on, on like Barry's World servers uh <laughs> if anyone remembers Barry's World and <laughs> Jolt oh it's all coming back to me um, but that that was good fun and I was I was never like Mr. Top of the of the high score table but I just really enjoyed uh, annoying people by camping 
<laughs> like there's a real pleasure to be had from being good at camping and not getting shot it's like you know and then people and then it's like it's a whole micro game going on in the map of the people who hate campers and the campers and uh yeah that was me i was a camper sorry everyone <laughs> not not a team player although i did enjoy it when you when you, when you were online with friends because like team playing with strangers isn't it's not quite the same as uh, playing with your social group and or even playing against your friends and shooting them in the face like there's that's like another pleasure of competitive multiplayer <laughs> friendly fire <laughs> not so friendly fire <laughs> um and then i got my first job in the industry so i've probably started gaming a bit it wasn't a lapsed gamer at that point but i was gaming less you know i certainly when I moved to London, didn't have a girlfriend, obviously didn't have kids at that point. Uh, <laughs> I can remember really fond memories of playing Knights of the Old Republic uh, that summer when I first started. And uh, and since then, and it, so I was a PC gamer originally, and like even when I got my first job in the industry at Sony, because I wasn't a console gamer, I probably looked down on consoles a bit, and it didn't even occur to me that Sony made games. I knew they were a platform holder but and yeah. a publisher, but I didn't realise they actually made them. So when I saw this job advertised, I was like, ah, really? Oh, interesting and uh <laughs> it's fortunate enough to, to get that but then that sort of indoctrinated me into the world of you know console game development and that's not what i would have chosen i would have much i would have liked to have sort of stayed in pc land uh you know ideally because that's what i was into and uh but you know the majority of the games i play now are it's probably 50 50 between pc and console um I think it's great that there's so many. I think Microsoft. Do Microsoft care? Like so, so many of the their console exclusives and stuff are are, are on Windows 10, and uh, that's that's great for me because I don't have an Xbox. Yeah, uh, and you'll never need one, one either. Yeah. Well, not at this rate, which you know <laughs> no. suits me because I've got my PS4. Uh, I've got my Vita gathering dust, and <laughs> uh, I've got a pretty top end PC for. Uh, I was doing a VR project last year, so when I. Uh, Ooh, built my nice. com- computer for doing freelance stuff i got sort of the second best of everything <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah so i i've not played much vr stuff recently but um yeah so that's kind of some of my my gaming highlights from from, from years gone by yeah so any games that you've recently played and what have you and the audio or the soundtracks on them have really impressed you <laughs> um so Apart from your own. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just always impressing myself. It was interesting actually going back to uh, listen to stuff you've done because it, uh, it's nice to... Because you just don't have that perspective. One of, the, one of the challenges of making a game is to try and... Well, some people are better at it than others is to sort of have that high-level view of your work so that you can evaluate it in the context of the game and, you know, is it good? And uh, mm. I am... I think relative to most game developers, probably better at that than... A lot of people, but I think a lot of it is actually just, just making the effort to do it. Most game developers don't play the games they're working <laughs> on, which is weird. But um, you know, you're just doing it day in day out, so you just kind of a lot of people are just doing their tasks uh, rather than thinking about the high level player experience. Overall but because, beca- yeah, yeah, because I've uh, come from that audio direction background at Media Molecule, though that's my job is to be the one who's evaluating the audio experience. And and actually, because Media Molecule's sort of got the meritocracy going on, I was also sort of sticking my oar into the wider player experience as well because uh, I'm like Mr. Anal critical so it's quite useful if you're trying to make a a polished player experience to have someone really anal pointing out (laughs) all the problems on the project but um in terms of games that i've been playing recently at the beginning of the year i played firewatch um which i really enjoyed other than the ending which was a bit disappointing i don't know if you've played that one no, I haven't played it it's still on my list it's yeah it's it's an amazing experience it's uh it's one of those things where it's kind of slight 
Yeah, it's a bit unfair to call it experimental because it's more it's more enjoyable than that term implies. But it's a uh, it does some really nice stuff with uh, building the relationship between uh, the player character and uh, another character, uh, and you communicate over radio. So it's not uh, relying on you know expensive character animation or um, the uncanny valley effect you get where you know it's just mm. like the characters look a bit wrong mm. yeah so it's just it's just really nicely done and um, that aspect of it's brilliant I really enjoyed that and uh, it's got really nice atmosphere so it's got one of the reasons I mentioned it is because it's got it's got really nice soundtrack uh, I forget the name of the chap who wrote it but I think it's the, one of the, the the designers in the project or the creative director has also written the music and um it's, it's just really nicely done I recently just literally couple of weeks ago started playing life is strange again because i'd played that a couple of years ago i was actually i'd reviewed a whole bunch of stuff for for uh i was on a bafta jury in the end of 2000 or that would be 2015 i think it was yeah. you, see, you see this is why you're not winning baftas they keep putting you on the jury you can't <laughs> help yourself that's true you can't rig it <laughs> nightmare uh, just bribe other people it's totally fine uh <laughs> joke joke never bribed anyone and got caught um, <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoyed Life is Strange I played that I think it was the, it was the best game award uh, which you can't blame me for <laughs> what one because that one goes back to the public to vote on but uh, it was part of the jury that uh, picked the uh, the shortlist of the games that were nominated mm-hmm. and um, I really enjoyed Life is Strange which is weird because I was kind of not expecting to because it's like this you know uh, teenage college Mm. drama thing i thought it was i was just gonna make me want to vomit but um <laughs> i totally engaged with my like inner <laughs> inner photography student and uh <laughs> i played the first two episodes of that um which was you know it was a pretty significant investment but you know like two mm. uh doing something as important as judging for BAFTA like to sort of you know give each game its sphere dues but I actually played that one longer than I needed to in order to make up my mind about what I thought about it just because I was enjoying it I just sort of <laughs> kept kept playing it but I put it down and uh, and then just just yeah, like I say a couple of weeks ago picked that back up again started playing episode 3 um, because I, I, the main reason I was drawn back to it is it, <laughs> it's not the gameplay which is actually um, can be quite repetitive and mm. a little bit annoying and grindy, but what I really like about it is the atmosphere is just absolutely amazing, and that is in large part down to the the soundtrack, which I believe is licensed. I might be wrong about that, but um, I'm not sure. Um, they did do a CD of it, so and yeah, it did they, have some names on it. Yeah, so I'm uh, guessing if it, most if of it, it. If it's not licensed, I think they maybe commissioned a band to write the music who who they maybe mm. had licensed the music from. But it's just the tone of it's absolutely spot on, and it there's really nice moments in it where it's interesting that a game can be so like I can that the gameplay can be so sort of flawed, and yet the experience has other qualities which are so brilliantly realised. Like it's kind of weird, but. I played a spoilers. I played a um, there was a a sequence where uh, my my girly self <laughs> was lying on the bed just listening to some music, and uh, it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> but in a weird sort of way, it's like most games just wouldn't do that because it'd be like that's dull. Mm. But just taking the time because everyone knows what that feeling is like I suspect of being mm. a teenager and just like yeah, yeah. having all the fucking time in the world <laughs> but not really realising <laughs> it at that moment and um, you know pre-children and all the rest of it and, and life happening and just you know listening to some music and chilling out and uh, it was kind of weird because I, 
I kind of felt like that's what I was doing, experiencing it. And there's moments like that in the game which I just think are absolutely fantastic. And you know, all the musical selections are absolutely bang on. And it's clear that there's someone or some people in the team who have just got real talent there for creating um, nice moments. And that's why I went back to it. And I'm pleased that that's still there, even if I don't. I, I go through the bits of it that I don't enjoy to get to those sort of little magic moments. And it absolutely makes it worthwhile for me. So, mm. so, so that's that's been fun going back into that. Um, other stuff I also there's another game that I'd played last year but again just being a dad sort of not had the time to uh, get back into it, it is, hampers you it does yes <laughs> yeah it's like I love my, I love my son but oh yeah I, I do I do miss gaming <laughs> <laughs> yes because the other thing is like when i'm not if i'm not too knackered then i like, like to spend time with my wife rather than so sort of just <laughs> uh, yeah i've put uh Lex and to you bed. Are? i'm going into my room now to play some games it's uh she, she's not a gamer so she just wouldn't get that so mm. you know uh priorities but i i still got back into playing uh, the witness um oh yeah which uh, again, it was a game I really enjoyed playing. And rather than you know check out something new, I've gone back to something that uh, I, I know that I enjoy and it's good. And mm. what's what's interesting? I actually had a bit of a drunk <laughs> Twitter rant about this uh, a couple of nights ago. Uh, I was out with some friends and then was had the train back from London to to try and stay awake. So I was just gibbering about uh, life is strange <laughs> and and the witness. But um, what's interesting about those projects is that they having even though I've not like life is strange. I hadn't played for. A must be 18 months or maybe longer but i've just gone straight back into it and it's as if i hadn't put it down and that's awesome that's exactly the kind of game that, is that good. i yeah. need um yeah. and it's because yeah. it's not you know it's not a mechanics like driven systemic you know rpg or real-time strategy or whatever mm. where like you know or or, or i think they made that really made this brought this home to me was i checked out overwatch uh about a month ago and um I hadn't played that and I just thought, you know, check it out. And I, I had my suspicions that I wasn't going to like it, not because the game isn't likable, but because I knew I wouldn't have the time to invest to get good enough to, yeah. even with all the, you know, like the skill level matching and stuff they do, it's just like the problem with being someone who has played a lot of competitive multiplayer games is I know what, what it feels like to be good and that's what I want from it. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to be rubbish i want to be rubbish and fight <laughs> through that and become good and then play it every night for <laughs> a couple of years <laughs> um and I, I got good enough at um the original uh star wars battlefront that came out uh, a couple of years ago um that, that was something the i was sound on that is good oh yeah absolutely top notch yeah the, the dice team are uh superb um yeah and uh, so that was the last competitive multiplayer that I actually, uh, because I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so I, <laughs> I I was prepared to actually spend, even though my son had <laughs> just been born, I was like, it was, a, it was a weird sort of thing where, <laughs> I guess, because my wife was so knackered, uh, and she was like, you know, breastfeeding stuff, so like, she, she, she had, I, like, I was, you know, fortunately sorry not sorry unable to help as much as i do now um that meant when like you know she went to bed i was able to like get my star wars game on and uh i don't have the time to to do that anymore and so anyway i checked out overwatch uh and i was kind of interested in checking out the audio experience because it's also really interesting in terms of they have this mantra of play by sound and there's lots of sound cues and you get different presentation of the sound depending on what team you're on etc etc so there's all these interesting things going on so i want to kind of check that out um after seeing a really good GDC talk by the the Blizzard audit team about that, and uh, and so I did, and I kind of got what I wanted out of it from that kind of 
research side of things but in terms of playing the game i was just like yeah i'm not <laughs> i'm not playing this um <laughs> i was also overwhelmed by it there's uh, there's there's things like for example obviously they've expanded the game over time since it's come out because mm-hmm. they want to keep the community engaged but they've yeah. clearly um taken their eye off of the uh the the new player introduction to the game there were some bugs there and there's just so many characters as well it's yeah. like it's actually mm. overwhelming and it, that really put me off and so blizzard if you're listening you need to sort that out um, <laughs> oh, they are they often do yeah well, they, they definitely listen to last <laughs> game radio i know people at blizzard i could just send them a facebook message and be like oh this was rubbish <laughs> you guys but you know it's like friends with these people do they really want criticism on facebook from me probably not <laughs> uh, i'd rather stay friends with them but um it's the kind of thing you could talk to them about if you saw them in person but it's just too weird to like send people criticism oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear um so yeah some of the stuff i've been playing recently and um which is good. I feel like that's completely coincidental that I just so happened to have been getting back into playing games a bit more in the past uh, few months. Um, it's just where where I'm at, basically, yeah. in terms yeah. of the, the baby cycle. Things are getting a bit more relaxed. Yeah, yeah. I can just, I'm sort of taking time to actually do it. Um, mm. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm semi-lapsed, or I, I was lapsed, but now I'm less lapsed. <laughs> <laughs> um. You're speaking about the licensed music on Life of It Life. It's strange. Is strange. Yeah. yeah. Which I've started myself and completely forgot what the title was. <laughs> when you're talking about licensing music, how hmm. the hell do you start with that? Because is it something that you draw on from personal experience? Do you you know, you think, ah, this band would be good for X. Yeah, and- so there's there's different approaches and mine isn't that because um yeah. I think it's fine to do that if you are creating this, you know kind of like an auteur experience where it's it is something very personal to the creator um but most uh, games aren't personal in that regard Mm. um i I don't i I don't think i'm not saying they don't exist but the irony is a game that's got budget for a licensed soundtrack is unlikely to be one that is personal because it's a big project (laughs) so that's why that tends not to come up um although you do have sort of triple i games now which are essentially you know um indie games but with a massive budget and so they're they're able to do that um and so like a game like life is life is strange like i don't I guess it's, the, it's personal from the character's point of view, but I don't think it's necessarily... I have no idea about the, the, the genesis of that project. I'm assuming it's not necessarily particularly personal for the development team, although mm. maybe they're engaging their inner young girl photographer students as well. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But f- for me, um, so the, the danger with that is that when you're creating experience, well, I can talk from personal experience on something like Little Big Planet, where yeah. um, like that's clearly not a personal experience it's not saying this is my take on you know whatever subject and this is how i feel and this is the music i was listening to at the time and in the way that mm. someone like you know i think i believe that's how someone like danny boyle puts together his licensed soundtracks for his films like they're and quentin tarantino too like they're, they're, they're this music that's personal to him that he feels fits his, his projects well, they tend to cut to that music don't they so Absolutely. they tend to end up throwing in the tunes that they've been cut into and because Kubrick, Kubrick did the same and because they're um, they are auteurs um, and the vision for the film and for the experience is very much theirs I think there's a synchronicity in terms of like you know like the 
the, the vibes, man, of <laughs> like <laughs> who they are and the music they like and the way they think and their rhythm and all the rest of it, that I think that that can work. So it's fine to be self-indulgent in that regard if you are an auteur. But for mm. a game like Little Big Planet, which, you know, that's more like of this like hodgepodge literally it's not it's like it's got this mashup oh, yeah. aesthetic of and it's all it's, it's a team of people and like you, the nice thing is once you know the different molecules as we as we call ourselves <laughs> um, and you know what their personalities are you can see their thumbprints on the project in terms of uh, yeah. their style and stuff but for me for the license soundtrack on that it was very important that um i didn't create like my dream soundtrack because the problem you've then got is because it's not this auteur experience that isn't necessarily going to chime with uh, with an audience mm. and i think you can hear that mm. in a game when you when you hear a license music and it just doesn't work and you're like what that's when someone has been self-indulgent like that and decided to put a bit of music on there because it works for them and so i wanted to avoid that uh, problem altogether for a couple of reasons one for the reason we've been discussing just to make sure the experience worked um by finding music that i wasn't already familiar with that meant that i was evaluating it on like you know at face value yeah and that allows me yeah. to find music because i've obviously got a, a, i've got like no a, involvement have you yeah, yeah not with the music there's no emotional attachment. that's the problem with music is because it's an emotional signifier you do you know the, all that you know your first dance you know if you get married and you have <laughs> your first dance and like that forever more that piece of music is uh unless you're really forgetful <laughs> has a different <laughs> a different sentimental meaning to you than it would have done prior to that and yeah. so yeah. you know you if you were working in a game and you had an emotional scene and you put that in there because it makes you cry, like clearly that doesn't translate to other people. And so that's like a really obvious example of why that is is, is dangerous and not a good thing to do. So for me, I would start with a brief uh, where I have an understanding of the different requirements for, for the game, for the particular use of the music for the level. Little Big Planet had a whole bunch of other requirements, like because it was a library of tracks for people to use in their levels, I had to make sure that any individual piece of music wasn't stepping on the toes of any other piece of music because then it was like a redundant slot on the library that could have been mm. given over to a different genre or, or or whatever to give more flexibility to creators. And so there was all these different boxes I had to tick. And that the more um, boxes you got to tick for an individual track, the harder it is to find the perfect track. So there is just a side to it, which is just a total grind um, of listening to a lot of music. Uh, and that's like a it's like a guided grind where you you've got a, a sense of the genre you want. So I would yeah. like have my brief and I would um, say to someone in Sony's music licensing department, um, here's the kind of thing I'm looking for. I might even give them a track suggestion. I found this, but it's not quite right. But this is the aspect of it that works. And then they would send me back literally hundreds of tracks. Uh, Good grief! <laughs> just not because they were they weren't necessarily listening to them all. They might like they'll listen to music all the time. They might hear something and say, oh, that sounds a bit like what Kenny was talking about, and then send me the whole album. And, you know, and over the yeah. course of a month, they're just sending me all this stuff. <laughs> and uh, and eventually, you know, they, they str- like something changes like, oh, that's interesting, um, but that's not quite right. And then they go, well, if you like that, then there's all these other artists on the same record label who are quite similar, the same but different, and da 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 And so for Little Big Planet 1, I w- Sony sent me like uh, a couple of thousand different bits of music. <sighs> wow. Uh, which I listened to. And so that, that process took about six months. Uh, yeah. overall like not like not six months of man hours but like from the start of like yeah. that process to the end it was about six months of work uh, and yeah so I think there's something like 12 or 13 licensed tracks in the first The Big Planet game so it gives you an idea of the ratio and that was just the stuff that Sony sent me of course I was doing my own research as well and listening to stuff on 
uh, MySpace was still a thing at that point because there was <laughs> there was even uh, like the the Cafe Tacuba track, um, which is uh, they're a, 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 me- a Mexican band. Um, they I found them on MySpace because I was searching for I was actually trying to find uh, Mexican metal was the the, the brief I had, <laughs> and I couldn't find that. But what I did stumble ac- across was this band who are basically the Mexican U two. Um, they're like they're absolutely huge in Spanish-speaking countries. Um, yeah, and so whenever I meet any other game developers who are from, particularly from South America, and I say I worked Little Big Planet, they're like, "Oh, who who picked the Cafe Tacuba track?" Because they all know that band. <laughs> and I was like, "That was me." They're like, yeah, because like everyone, everyone in like Latin America was like fist pumping when when like a AAA game from Sony had some music from their culture in it, and they were like really yeah. pumped for it. And, like that, that was interesting. Like, that's like I didn't do that to make them feel good i did it because uh, one of the br- one of the briefs yeah exactly but the, but the one of the briefs i had was the the music f- for little big planet um it had to come from the countries that were the inspiration for the different themes in the games but it mustn't yeah. be a stereotype of that country so that's why i was looking for like mexican metal because like certainly from a like completely ignorant naive uh western uh, certainly in the UK point of view, where we get we mm. get all of our idea of Mexican culture filtered through the already quite pers- weird perspective of America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so like we think of Mexican music, we think of mariachi. And so I didn't want, you know, any of the licensed tracks to be mariachi because that was like obvious. I wanted it to be something that people weren't familiar with because that's intrinsically a lot more interesting. And so yeah. that's one of the, the reasons the Little Way Planet soundtrack is kind of successful is that the music works because i found music that fitted the gameplay but it also it's eclectic like you don't know what's coming next i like to describe it as like you know a second hand music <laughs> little bin <laughs> full of lps it's just like all these people have died and you've got a random hodgepodge <laughs> of stuff in there <laughs> and uh yeah so that was that was a really so i kind of approached that in a quite a sort of ordered uh fashion um but i think that's what what that's yeah bizarrely even though it comes across as quite sort of uh, like a relaxed mental experience. It was like this super organized slog <laughs> pulling that together. Wow. And uh, yeah, so not at all based on, a lot of people assume that I'm like like a massive uh, music nerd and like I was just like, yeah, this is going to be the perfect artist for that. But that is like, couldn't be further from the <laughs> truth. I, I don't actually listen to that much music. Um, I'm listening to more music now. I find myself actually listening to music with my son uh, more so. I don't go spare whilst I'm playing with him in his train or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I need some something in the room that's not like totally repetitive and mind numbing. And uh, I find myself um, listening to music, uh, and that's something that I don't do because I, you know, I write music and I'm using my ears all day. It's like I don't want to be subjecting them to more music uh, yeah. in, my, in my time off, um, which is kind of weird, but. You know, that's how it is. I have a couple of quick fire questions then. Okay. If you had the opportunity to score a film or TV series, would you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would it get a BAFTA? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would be hilarious wouldn't it? Like if I did a TV show and got a BAFTA for that, even though I had no idea what I'm doing. That would be, that'd be brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean... TV is obviously where it's at these days in terms of that's TV's like the new movies in terms of being that's yeah. where a lot of the interesting stuff is happening. Um, I would absolutely love to do it, but that's not what I'm known for and it's not something I'm chasing. I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing. If anyone want, asked me to do it, I would definitely take the opportunity. Um, mm. I think film, 
Yeah, I would. I would love to be working in the upper echelons of the movie <laughs> business as a composer. Yeah, well, who knows? Like again, not something I'm pursuing, but I would. Yeah, that that would be an amazing, amazing thing to do. If you had the chance to redo a game soundtrack um, or audio um, for a game, uh, sort of past or present, which one would you choose? So, originally when. Uh, so I, I read these questions before uh, we came on air, and I thought about <laughs> I thought about that one, and I was like, <laughs> "You can't really say that because there's an implication if you're redoing it that you think it wasn't very good and needs to be better." Or like, but I wouldn't want to like if I had a time machine and I could somehow kill the composer and pretend to be them or something, would I do it? And um, <laughs> like that's probably no because like if you really loved it, then you wouldn't want to break what it was. Yeah. So true, but yeah, um, recently. Um, a, a, a composer friend got in touch with myself and a bunch of other composers, and they 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 basically just said uh, they were they were upset about um, all the the migration and displacement in Syria, and said you know let's do a, let's do an album of video game music that we sell, and all the proceeds go to charity for that. Mm. Either that isn't happening, or I've been cut off the list. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I began thinking because like the suggestion was that we actually do covers of uh, game music that we like, and I was thinking, oh, so what? What would I do? And actually, um, I've got a real love of the SimCity 2000 music, and um, I, I would <laughs> quite happily just cover some of that stuff. Partly because it's so sort of simple, uh, it would actually be really, <laughs> really easy to do, so it wouldn't be too much work. But um, I just, I just, I just love that stuff, um, mm-hmm. and so that is one that uh, if if someone was to do like a remaster of SimCity 2000, I would love to be the composer to, uh, to revisit <laughs> some of that stuff. That would be cool. Like you could do on your fiddle as well. Cause most of that were monophonic. <laughs> <laughs> Probably could work some fiddle in there somewhere. Yeah. But that'd be cool. Gives it a different slant. <laughs> <laughs> the Scottish version. <laughs> the last question I have then is having signed up for your newsletter and received the death by numbers track um, that you send out um, well, hey. you sign up uh, which is fantastic um, I was oh, cool. listening to it on repeat um, <laughs> a couple of days ago and uh, it's just the the number of influences and things that I can hear in it um, yeah so it, it just sounds so familiar straight away but yet so unique as well. Um, cool. You know, there's uh, obviously some of the sort of folk traditional stuff. There's even a little bit of like Nine Inch Nails and stuff in there. There's <laughs> things referring back to um, that feel very like Bastion. Um, you know, what's weird is it's probably it's probably more actually because I think Trent Reznor might be one of the producers for Marilyn Manson back in the day. So it's he is. it's yeah. it's probably just because that was music I was into. There's probably little aspects of that <laughs> coming out, but um, yeah, no, that's really cool. I mean, that's that's. That, so that is actually that's a track which I've written for a game um, called Chime Sharp, which uh, okay. I don't know if you remember the original Chime, which came out on Xbox 360, I think, um, which was uh, it was quite a successful um, music puzzle game, mm-hmm. and um, Chime Sharp is the sort of spiritual successor to that, um, which is it's out on Steam, is, yeah. uh, PlayStation Four. Uh, etc um other consoles are available and <laughs> so i've been working with uh uh my friend ian who has uh, been publishing that uh, and i suggested to him that we do a dlc pack of uh, video game composers um uh, and so i've got together a, a band of uh 
of really cool people. We've got Inon Zur, um, who people know from the Fallout mm-hmm. uh, games. Mm-hmm. Um, Gareth Coker, who did Ori in the Blind Forest. Uh, Wilbur Roger, who was one of the in-house composers at LucasArts. Uh, so he's done a bunch of Star Wars stuff. And he did, a, uh, I think he did a Lara Croft game recently. And he's doing Dead Island 2. And then Penka Kniva. Um, who's an amazing composer and orchestrator. Um, she, she's done a whole bunch of really high-profile stuff as an orchestrator, uh, but she's sort of really forging a plow uh, as, a, as a composer for herself now, and she's amazing. And so, uh, have I missed anyone off? How many is that? One, two, three, four. Oh, so there's five of us, myself included. <laughs> um, and so this is like a little DLC pack for, for Chime Sharp, basically. Okay. Um, that That's like the A team. <laughs> it is, it's, it's really cool. There's a lot of really cool people there, and so it's been fun You're for me. Kidding. These are people who, like you know, I would never get to work with, really, realistically speaking. Um, mm. You know, what are the chances of me getting to work with Inon Zur? <laughs> Zero. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, but this was an opportunity. I was sort of. I'm on the GDC advisory board, so I've met all these people. I know them. They know me, and I've just sort of thought this up. And I didn't know if anyone would go for it, but I got in touch with them. I saw them at GDC uh, last year and uh, said would they fancy getting involved in this and they were up for it so so that's been really cool fun to be a project on where I've sort of been producing that and working with them and uh, so I, I wrote Death by Numbers for that oh, okay. and so that's why it's, it's, I have that track sort of <laughs> as a, my little incentive to get people to sign up for my, for my newsletter mm-hmm. the, the idea being yeah. there that uh, mm-hmm. you know when I do have other music coming out I can just ping people and say buy it please uh, <laughs> Um, and a lot of the stuff I'm doing there because it's indie uh, is uh, low budget and so what's nice about that is that uh, as a composer you're able to retain uh, rights normally if you're working with AAA and your composer it's what's called a buyout where you get paid more money but you don't own the music and so if the album's sold you don't get any money from that Uh, whereas I own the music for some of the games I'm working on which means if I sell the album um, all the money goes to me so it's within my interests because I've been getting paid less money to write music I, I need to sort of try and pimp <laughs> the music to try and <laughs> yeah. claw back yeah, some yeah. of that sort of lost income in inverted commas and um, so that's why I'm sort of set up the email list etc sort of going from that then my question would have been um, so have you ever actually sort of considered recording a standalone album I know you've said that you don't necessarily like the performing side of it but you could potentially re- release music through something like Bandcamp. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I would love to do that. I mean, it's just um, it's taking a time to do that. So yeah. the, the nice thing about working on projects and writing music for them is because you've got deadlines, you kind of just have to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas a personal project like that, the whilst I'd still, I'd, I would like to do. It, I've never really written music for music's sake, so I don't know what would come out. Mm-hmm. Something like that, Death by Numbers tracks is kind of close maybe but that was still with a mind to the the gameplay in chime sharp so it wasn't completely devo- it, it was creatively uh not influenced by anything other than my sort of musical mm. interests at that moment in time which came out in that track <laughs> yeah uh weird as they are but um it wasn't completely just my own personal <laughs> wank fantasy music <laughs> um so i don't know what that would be to be honest because i just i've never had to just try and write music like i say music for music's sake uh, so mm. i guess i'm maybe slightly scared of that to be honest um there's music i'm writing for a game at the moment that's unannounced that again it's not completely uh <laughs> wank fantasy music it's um so it's a terrible phrase i will not say it again i promise um <laughs> but it helps to convey the uh you know writing esoteric stuff that no one else might want to listen to um this this music is is influenced by the game but it's because I can't talk about the game because it's not announced, but it's um, mm. without 
it's not like I'm writing music that I want and ignoring the game, but just the way the game is, um, it needs me to bring a lot of ideas to the table yeah. in the music. Uh, and that's not me being critical of the game, it's just the kind of game it is, but it will all become clearer when, it, when it's announced. But um, So I feel like that music, I feel like someone's actually paying me to write an album because it's not score in the traditional sense either. So uh, it does feel like I'm basically just being paid to write an album of music. Mm. Uh, and so that's the closest I've got at this point and that will be on Bandcamp uh, when it when when it comes out later oh, this cool. year um, oh well that's pretty much your album then yeah pretty <laughs> much um, and that's really cool and uh, so I'm looking forward to that coming out because that feels like the most personal in a way because uh, like I say because it's mainly it's come from me more than it has from the game I'd say mm. um, just the way it's worked out and uh, that, that's that's been a cool experience I've enjoyed that so maybe that's one step closer to doing my uh, my concept album <laughs> <laughs> excellent that's all i have kev have you any other questions i've just got the desert island discs one i reckon um what what would be your i don't know top five desert island discs just straight off the bat so something i've rediscovered recently and absolutely love and cannot communicate and express in words how much I love it because I just absolutely fucking love it. Is I'm not sure. Try sound. I'm not sure you're familiar <laughs> with um, Doctor Who, um, who were a yes. They were medicine show. Yeah, just this really quirky band from the 60s, 70s. That the way I explain it to people who don't know who they are is they're a bit like uh, <laughs> they're a bit like a retro flight of the Concords. Not they're actually <laughs> yeah. because they they write these like really silly songs. But unlike Fight the Concords, who are comedy first, musicality second, mm-hmm. uh, Doctor Hook are like amazing songwriters, and like they're just the the, the crafting of this. They're like they're like the best songs ever written, slightly let down by the fact that they're all like fake. Uh, sentimental <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or like Sylvia's stoner songs mind. yeah that's like their best known hit and it's like <laughs> the weird thing is if you play that to someone they'll just think what is this shit but if you know <laughs> that they're taking the piss it's like absolute genius and yeah. my favourite song of theirs is called The Millionaire um, the refrain for it is uh and I've got more money than a horse has hair because my rich old <laughs> uncle died and answered all, all my prayers. Uh, and it's just, what I like about their songs is they create a little world. Like that's a song about an ugly rich guy <laughs> who's essentially <laughs> paying off women to be his like, you know, lover or whatever. And it's like, a lot of it's not very PC these days. <laughs> um, which is, in a bizarre sort of way, is also quite refreshing. Um, and... Mm. Uh, but this is music that we used to. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Sorry, I'm cracking up. Um, we used to listen to this on like our family drives down from like Edinburgh to Cornwall. Um, oh my word! It, it, you know, <laughs> like two days of driving for like two <sighs> weeks in blistering sun in Watergate Bay, as it was. And uh, but in between listening to like this is this must have been like pre-personal stereos which saved families up and down the country from uh, mur- the children from murdering <laughs> each other as they fought over what tape was going to get played in the car but I um, in between like Enid <laughs> Brighton and Roald Dahl cassette tapes um, was <laughs> Doctor Hook and like you know the original and now, now that's what I call music before it was turned into now yeah. um, yes and uh, with Banana Rama and all kinds of you know 80s nonsense on there but this 
they stuck the hook was that like a regular regular feature on the in the car playlist mm. and i listen to the lyrics now and it's so not child friendly <laughs> there's all kinds of really dodgy sexual innuendo and i listen to it now and i laugh at thinking about my parents laughing at this stuff knowing that we didn't get it and <laughs> yes. i think that, that so i've got like this sort of emotional connection to it too for that so that's a really long answer but I absolutely love Doctor no, that's Hook. A great answer. So yeah. people don't know Doctor <laughs> Hook. I would. Uh, it probably doesn't translate. It's one of those things. Like I, I can never put Doctor Hook in a game because it just will not translate. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> can unless you imagine I, that in Doom. Unless I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> unless I'm doing Kenny the game, in which case may, maybe <laughs> maybe you know <laughs> maybe I'll do that. But other other stuff. Um, let's see. So I mentioned Marilyn Manson earlier. Uh, when I was a teenager, yep. I really really loved. Uh, <laughs> Antichrist superstar, uh, irresponsible uh, hate anthem. Yeah, which great is, way to start an album. Again, not 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 very PC. Um, no, <laughs> quite 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 naughty stuff. But I um, think he was trying to stir it up deliberately. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. It's kind of kind of pathetically pantomime <laughs> in many respects. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and horribly earnest with it, which is kind of <laughs> why I don't listen to it anymore. Also, they're they're just not as good as they used to be. But anyway, um, no. that that album, particularly on the production side of things. Um, so phenomenal yeah just lots of really little nice ideas and the fact that it's got uh, recurring motifs that happen in different songs that were in earlier songs it was really a lot more sophisticated than stuff like Oasis I was listening to in that yeah. regard and I really got into it and um, I've never really been a, a, a metalhead or into industrial music or, 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 or I guess what you could <laughs> loosely describe as noise based music uh, but <laughs> Marilyn Manson was the closest I got and so it, that kind of gave me my, my, my ears for hearing past the noise that you know I think a lot mm. of people you can hear the production absolutely and just sort of once you get past the fact you can hear sort of past the, the guitars basically and yeah. pick up all the detail and really appreciate it and I've got a lot of love for, for that, that style of music I don't really listen to it because it's uh I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an anxious teenager anymore. So I don't. <laughs> I don't need the darkness. But um, I much rather listen to Doctor Hook. <laughs> so so that album was. That, it was a phase. <laughs> absolutely, but it's like a glorious phase. And so uh, I would. I would. I would take that album with me um, onto my desert island. Mm. Uh, what else? I've got a real love for <laughs> James Taylor. Not the quartet. The uh, the the, the, <laughs> the sort of folky, uh, easy listening crooner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, get that from my parents. Um, and I, I've, I, I'm a bit of an acoustic guitar picker as well myself, so I occasionally can be heard uh, uh, singing a bit of "You've Got a Friend" or or mm. uh, "Fire and Rain." <laughs> just annoying people just, generally. Yeah, just 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 walking up behind people and singing some James Taylor at them. And uh, I've seen James Taylor live a couple of times, and uh, he's not everyone's cup of tea, but he's an amazing performer, and I absolutely love him. So I would take I don't know I don't know what album I would take of his. Maybe maybe the 1970s white album best of uh, yeah <laughs> and uh, so that i've got two more okay there has to be some beatles in there i would probably take the blue album over the red album uh mm -hmm. i think that the later stuff's better yeah it's just again production wise it's a little bit more interesting yeah. you've got your more interesting yeah you've got your penny lanes and whatnot in there and it's just some i mean all, i love all of their stuff as, as as many people do but um i think that mm. that blue album's like my is like my beatles album that's the one that i like the best and mm. so for the last one gosh hmm that no pressure I've, I, I, I've i've shot myself in the foot now i should have picked other things but um what 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 makes me sound really interesting? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe. What's your guilty pleasure? What's my guilty pleasure? Well, well Doctor Hook definitely, but um, 
Ah, what else to listen to? I really like uh, the artist Jim Noir. Uh, he's a chap that oh yes, he licensed yeah. uh, one of his tracks for Step into my. Uh, oh, what were my called? my Man. patch was Man. was the, yes. the the track we had in Little Big Planet of his that we licensed and dun, 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 yeah, which is also yeah. like the theme tune to one of the comedy shows on Radio Four. Uh, <laughs> it's bizarre, but um, <laughs> and every time I hear it, I feel like they've stolen it from Little Big Planet. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you know, you know, it's not like like we own it, and we licensed it, but it's just it's, it's always that's that's the other thing is f- to bring it that background to that. Like I wanted the the tracks that Big Planet to be stuff people hadn't heard before, so that not only was it not my um, preconceived ideas of what the music was, it wasn't the audiences didn't mm. bring any baggage True. to the table. Yeah, that's another side to it. So there's like a mm. hunt to try and find again new stuff. Anyway, I really, really like uh, Jim Noir's second or third album. I think it's called uh, Jimmy's Show. Um, I listened to that. That was like the soundtrack to my summer, like in 2013, basically. And uh, I've listened to that a lot. And mm. uh, so songs about cups of tea and stuff like that. So it's just <laughs> brilliantly eccentrically British and uh, weird. But also, again, I've got a love of uh, sort of retro aesthetics. And he goes out of his way, uh, much more hardcore than me. I think he records... Um, and you're on vintage equipment using vintage instruments and all that and mm. just got this lo-fi sound yeah. that I absolutely love and I'm using uh, I'm not I, I, can't, I do not have a big enough studio or enough money to buy vintage uh, synths or um, instruments but I, I now uh, this is where I want to talk to you about as well <laughs> but I, I do use a lot of um, um, you know plug-in emulation of tape saturation and uh, yes. and uh, all, all that kind of stuff tape echo on, and stuff yeah some of the stuff I'm writing at the moment is uh, synthwave which is sort of future retro 80s music yeah using yeah, stuff it's, that's really in vogue at the moment um, a lot of it isn't actually synthwave because if it doesn't sound 80s or early 90s with uh, that FM console sort of Sega mm. Genesis uh, what am I saying I'm not an American Mega Drive uh, sound <laughs> um, it it's, it's not synthwave it's got to have that retro and it's got to have a hint of cheese about it and if it's not in yeah. there it's not synthwave and I am a cheese meister I absolutely <laughs> love like a strong chord progression and a strong hook and a strong melody um, and so I'd be really enjoying indulging that side of me combined with retro aesthetics there's one track on Taylor We Unfolded called uh, Go For It Spelt gopher because it's got a gopher in the label. <laughs> yeah, that is that was I suppose my first attempt at. I say that's no. A lot of my stuff at Medium Hockey was like had a retro vibe. I wrote a lot of Muzak. Well, the drum like machines that. and stuff they sound yeah, very definitely. of the time. You know, of, of the early eighties, the sort of eight oh eights and stuff. That came from a um, a desire to make the music sound a bit 70s or 60s like kids TV show BBC kind of yeah. plas- you know sticky back plastic Blue Peter mm. type thing so Fisher that's Price. that's where that came from and as a result of really getting into that as part of like developing Media Molecules audio aesthetic and Little Big Planet's audio aesthetic particularly uh, and kind of it's weirdly it became like the studio's aesthetic if you look at any of the idents i did over the 10 year uh, eight years i was there um th- they've got like a retro aesthetic in there and that's something i sort of developed over time and it came stronger and stronger mm. and it's now sort of part of my own personal aesthetics of it in the project that's unannounced that but do you think uh, that it works on. it works well with the visuals as well because they've got that kind of gym shop aesthetic yeah you know, definitely when you see it yeah. yeah that totally works that's another reason for it but it's more like that wasn't something that was part of 
me actually that's not true <laughs> i went through this tragic phase when i first moved to london where i uh had a conversation with my flatmate we were watching like an old 1940s movie and they were yeah. all wearing trilbies and had mustaches and and they knew how to dress and jim was <laughs> like why don't people have mustaches and wear trilbies anymore life was better then uh <laughs> brexit uh <laughs> but i went through this tragic phase like when like a lot of people i moved to london like reinvented myself and i wore a trench coat and had a, i didn't have this mustache but i wore a trilby which is Excellent. like awful awful <laughs> and pathetic but um so i guess i did have a bit of a retro thing going on then but um anyway yeah that's that's something that i love and now i'm obsessed i've got i do have i don't have a lot of old analog equipment but i do have some i've got an old real to real tape recorder uh, a really nice uh, Swiss one, Nagra. That's that's what was used on films. Oh like, yes, back in the day. Yeah. It's a mono one. It's not one of those super expensive stereo ones. But I've got that, and I've got I've got a, a wire recorder, which is like this precursor to magnetic tape. I've even got something which yeah. I heard of recently called a magnetic disc recorder, which is like Ooh. weird, <laughs> very weird. Uh, <laughs> so I've got all this junk that I uh, enjoy. Not that I have time to play with it, but um, <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to just ask you about um, what if you had a limitless budget. Then, what would be your dream piece of kit for your studio? Um, my pal Daniel Pemberton um, has in his studio that I think he bought for this because so Daniel is like an A-list composer now. Yeah, and, he's done films on too. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. he he did uh, the, Steve, the the Steve Jobs movie with uh, Daniel yeah, Boyle. Right. And uh, so he he bought uh, a Yamaha, uh, I think it's CS80, I can't remember if that's the right uh, name. Oh my that's, God, they weigh a ton. <laughs> weigh, and they cost like tens, yes. like 70 grand or something. And uh, he's, he's, so fucker's got one of those, but that's like, <laughs> uh, just like that was like, like, like that is the Blade Runner synth. Yes, and there's only about four in existence. <laughs> yeah, that are still working. And it just, yeah, it's, it, it's mad. So I've not even had a shot on that. But I don't. I'd be scared of touching it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, that that would be on the list for sure. Because you know, if you've got limitless budget, then you can afford to have the space to put that beast in yeah. your studio and, and the removal meant to actually lift it in. Yeah, and maintain it. Oh god, it's just yeah, yeah nice. So yeah, that that I love that. <laughs> Definitely. Maybe I could persuade Daniel to put me in his will. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like signing your own death warrant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all I have. Happy enough, Kev? Oh yeah, more than happy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Being able to geek out with somebody else. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you, Kenny, for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, well, thank you. It's been really good fun for uh, yeah, like I say, geeking out. Uh, thank yeah. you for allowing me to just uh, talk bollocks at you <laughs> <laughs> for two hours. Always a pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> we're used to it now. It's it's nice to have somebody else that does it that's on the show. Why we're here? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, as we've always done on our guest interview shows and things, um, we'll. Um, hand it over to you to give any shout outs for any current projects um, anything you're working on or anything that you d- think deserves um, a lot more attention so go uh, ahead. well I've already mentioned a few things I, I I wish the project I was working at the moment was announced because then I could pimp that but um, one of the other projects I'm working on at the moment is Nights and Bikes uh, with my friends Rex and Moo at Foam Sword Games they had a successful Kickstarter campaign for that uh, mm. last year um, that's getting there it's not it's not finished <laughs> But that's a really fun project to work with. I worked with Rex for all the time I was at 
uh, Media Molecule. So we've been working together for over 10 years now. And so uh, that's a uh, really fun relationship to, to keep. I was going to say keep picking at. Sounds like a scab. That's not very nice now, is it? Uh, to keep uh, milking. No, that's not good. Uh, you know what I mean. Um, You're not doing very well with this, are no, you? But, <laughs> Didn't but talk to you on that's Monday. really cool project. So like that, that's not anything anyone can buy yet. And I guess the Kickstarter campaign is uh, closed because they, they got some money from that. Yeah. Um, they've been published by Double Fine so, uh, as well. So they got some additional cash there. And that's good because I think that that will help them find an audience as well. Uh, through oh, yeah, Double, definitely. The Double Fine Presents label. Um, mm. So Pimp That I've already mentioned The audio mentoring project uh, That's worth checking out If you're into Audio game stuff Or would like to Get into the industry um, That's it Shout out Yeah, that's, yeah Cool that's Hi yeah, to all fine. my peeps <laughs> 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 I can't believe I just said that But yeah Hi, hi everyone Well that wraps the show up then And uh, so thank you to Everybody who's Currently listening And uh, it's All four of you <laughs> and Colm <laughs> um, so thank you very much and uh, good night bye bye And a horse has